This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Amtrak runs trains all across America, and for decades, it's been losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Its historic routes are getting old and need serious upgrades, and there's been safety issues as well. In the past few years, there have been several deadly crashes on Amtrak routes. Two years ago, Amtrak brought in an outsider to fix these problems. His name is Richard Anderson, the former CEO of Delta Airlines. Since he took over, Anderson has been making a lot of changes and also a lot of enemies. Today on the show, can Richard Anderson make Amtrak relevant to the future of American transportation? Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Tuesday, October 15th. So tell me about who Richard Anderson is. What's his background? Most famously, he was the CEO of Delta Airlines for nine years. He is a tough boss. Ted Mann is a reporter based in Washington, D.C. Running Delta, he was famously and or infamously one of the more hard-headed airline CEOs, really, of his generation. How so? In taking over Delta, he was taking over an airline that was emerging from bankruptcy. He turned them into a very profitable airline. And he was really willing to part company with other airline executives. At one point, Delta quit the the airline trade group over a policy disagreement. He just is sort of a guy who has been seen by his peers as willing to zig when others zagged, and a guy who was just totally unapologetic about it if he felt it was the right decision. And this is exactly why Anderson was called to head up Amtrak. What I think a lot of people involved in the railroad would acknowledge was just a kind of organizational dysfunction. When they went out to look for a CEO to run this railroad, they went looking for someone who was going to knock some heads together and put a charge through the company and get it working better. So why do you think he decided to take on a job at a challenging operation like Amtrak? It's a really good question. I think the guy was in the mood for a challenge He's been on the Hill a lot since he started at Amtrak and and usually finds a way to work into his testimony the fact that he doesn't even get paid to run Amtrak. He doesn't get paid to run Amtrak? Doesn't get paid. (laughs) Yeah. There's going to be no ability on the part of workers to say, Richard Anderson is eliminating these jobs while he's making X number of dollars a year. Mm -hmm. That line is not available to people who disagree with his decision. There are a lot of people who disagree with some of the things Anderson is doing to change Amtrak. One of his fights is about how to make trains safer. There have been several major accidents in recent years. In 2015, an accident in Philadelphia killed eight people, and another in 2017 in Washington state killed three. Hundreds of people have been injured. Anderson thinks these crashes could have been prevented with more automation in train cars. Pilots increasingly use automation to fly planes, and Anderson wants to put similar technology in trains. 
The most shocking thing to anyone who is coming from aviation into railroading is the amount to which safety still relies on one human being. In railroads, if I'm an engineer and I drive a train from New York to Philadelphia, I am required to study and memorize the route, what the landmarks are that I'd be passing, knowing that if I pass this factory building on the right-hand side of the tracks that I am X number of meters away from a zone where I have to slow down or speed up. Wow, that sounds like it takes an enormous amount of memorization. It's a total reliance on the human brain and a system of rules. And we know that the brain will let us down from time to time. And you have, in the case of an Amtrak train, hundreds of souls riding on that. So if he wants to do a very aviation style safety approach on the train. And in particular, he wants to bring screens into the locomotive cab so that you would have a sort of a heads up display and a moving map that would show the engineer where he is at all times. And that is completely anathema to railroad tradition. Why would there be any opposition to this idea? Well, the fear of distraction among you know, engineers themselves, the engineers union and the safety regulators has always said no screens whatsoever, no way. And probably the most serious rule other than you cannot be drunk or on drugs when driving a train is you cannot have your phone on because mm -hmm. the, the chance of distraction is so great. So that's a big fight that he's having. Anderson faced another fight after he took on an issue that nobody disagrees with, trains being on time. One of the reasons Anderson says trains are often late is because of hobbyists, people who restore old train cars and attach them to the back of Amtrak trains and basically hitch a ride. We use the word hobbyists. They don't all love that term. But basically, if you or I bought an old antique railroad car from the heyday of the Pennsylvania Railroad and can afford to store it somewhere, the way it worked for decades was we could hook that onto the back of an Amtrak regional train and go for a ride. That surprises me that that's a, a thing. I mean, so you can just fix up an old train and attach it to the back of an Amtrak? <laughs> if it surprised you, imagine how surprising it was to a guy who had run an airline. <laughs> it's like, like no, one was, no one was like hooking a glider to the back of a 737. You can't go fix up the old Wright Brothers plane and attach it to the flight from New York to Los Angeles. Yeah, you know, I, I want to go to Pittsburgh today. I'm going to hook onto your tail. Um, no, that's not how it works in aviation. And, and he was, I think, shocked by this. So basically what he did was the first thing he did was raise the price mm -hmm. a lot. He said it to me, and you have been a business reporter too. Have you ever heard a CEO refer to his own price increase as dramatic? <laughs> he said, he's like, I, I no. dramatically raised their prices and I will dramatically raise them again. He's, he was just pricing them out of the way, basically making it harder for anyone to, to do this. And he, he makes no bones about it. He, he doesn't want private cars hooked onto the back of the 151 to New York. You know, like that does nothing for him. They aren't his paying customers the way he sees the railroad, and it's a distraction from the service that he's trying to provide. The service Anderson is trying to provide is modern, efficient, 21st century transportation, and importantly, profitable. But how do you turn around a company that's lost millions of dollars for years, and one that's ultimately accountable to politicians? That's after the break.
This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Tap the banner to learn more. Welcome back. Amtrak CEO Richard Anderson is fighting to make the decades-old company profitable. He's trying to accomplish that by breaking apart some of Amtrak's old cross-country routes that take days to traverse in favor of improving shorter routes between major cities. For example, instead of maintaining a train line called the Southwest Chief, which runs from Chicago to L.A. and lost $57 million last year. Anderson says, why not cut back on that line and instead invest in train lines that run between population centers like Houston and Dallas? Just to give a sense of how much more profitable shorter routes between major cities can be, take a look at the Northeast Corridor, which starts in Boston, stops in New York City, and ends in Washington, D.C., That one train line alone earned Amtrak more than $500 million last year. The rest of the 15 train lines, they lost more than $500 million. Anderson doesn't think it should be their job to preserve 1,500-mile passenger rail route because that's just not realistically how most people are going to get 1,500 miles from one place to another. But for 350 miles between two population centers, there's no better way to move people than by train, and they want to do more of that. And these are very historical lines, right, that have been moving people in our westward expansion for hundreds of years. Yeah, these are routes that carrying both people and freight created the modern United States. Amtrak was created out of the remains of the private railroads that were, at one point, big, profitable, monopoly businesses in the United States. In the 1960s, commercial airlines and interstate highways became the main way that people traveled around the country, undercutting the train industry's business model and profits. And the thing that is the least profitable is moving people around. So what the private railroads do is come to the government and say, about that obligation to carry people, um, we would really like to not do that anymore. So in 1970, Congress said, fine, give that unprofitable people-moving business to us. We'll subsidize it with taxpayer dollars. And the company, Amtrak, was born. But by the early 2000s, members of Congress started thinking about modernization, train crashes were happening too often, and cross-country routes just weren't the way people wanted to get around. So, in 2008, Congress passed another law 
that effectively required Amtrak to modernize the ailing network. What Anderson and the other sort of folks in the Amtrak management would say is a, a national train network doesn't necessarily mean I continue to run a train from Chicago to Los Angeles a few times a week to serve a very small number of people who actually travel from Chicago to Los Angeles by train. So the mission, as Anderson sees it, is first and foremost moving people by train at a reasonable price and basically maintaining the mode as an option for people who want to get around by train. He would like to connect pairs or, you know, three cities that where, where there's population density, where there's need to travel, and where the distance is not too great, and run trains back and forth much more frequently the way they do in the Northeast. Because they say you could be just as successful if you ran frequent train service where rail is competitive with flying and driving. Anderson's now actively testing that theory. Last month, Amtrak launched a nonstop train that runs between Washington, D.C. and New York. But many members of Congress don't agree that scrapping long-distance routes in favor of shorter ones is the right approach. There was this one meeting in the summer of 2018 where this disagreement boiled over. A senator from New Mexico had gathered with six other lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats, and they had a common goal, to maintain the Southwest Chief, that route between Chicago and L.A. that lost $57 million last year. When Anderson arrived at the meeting, he told the senators that not only was Amtrak not going to contribute any money for the maintenance, it was also going to cut the line in half. If you wanted to go from Chicago to L.A. in the future, you'd have to get out in Dodge City, Kansas, and take a bus 475 miles to Albuquerque, where you could catch another train. And they basically hit the ceiling. What do you mean? You're going to break this venerable route in two. We are here trying to find money to fix this thing up and keep it running. Anderson just sits there and says, sorry, like we, we have to look at an alternative solution. This is the way it is. One of the things that a source of ours wrote down in the meeting that was language that was annoying the senators is he kept referring to this route and this problematic stretch in the center of it as a math problem for Amtrak. That language frustrated senators because for people who live in small towns along that route, it's not just a math problem. The problem for the little rural communities that have a train stop is very real. In many cases, they are very small towns. These are areas where the other options for transportation for a, a trip of a few hundred miles are dwindling, like in the moment. Airlines are, are retreating from small internal domestic routes where they don't make a very good profit. So the residents of those communities, the way they see it, they can't afford there to be a change. It's a matter of desperation. Ultimately, Anderson didn't move forward with this bus replacement, and the Southwest chief remains fully intact. But so does the anger Anderson has inspired. Some want him gone from Amtrak. One of the private rail car owners, a guy named Bennett Levin, who's a former uh, civic official in Philadelphia, Levin is not a shy guy. And he had some giant banners made, and he hung them on these billboards that sit right next to the tracks of the Northeast Corridor, one of which says, save Amtrak, and the other one says, fire Anderson. Fire Anderson. Wow, how does Anderson feel about all this heat that he's taking? 
I asked him about the the Fire Anderson banner and asked him, you know, specifically, what do you feel when you ride by that on the train? And he just looked at me and said nothing. So for a man who likes a good fight, Anderson is certainly getting one. I think his vision is, look, we're never going to have a railroad that serves this function that doesn't have support from the government. There always will be a government role in keeping this system operational the same way there is a government role in paying to keep the highways paved. But they envision the entire railroad, including those long distance and the state-supported trains, they envision that whole network running in the black as soon as sometime in the, in the coming year. Meaning it doesn't lose money. Meaning it doesn't lose money. And that is absolutely unheard of. When I started covering transportation a few years ago, no one was talking about Amtrak running in the black. And they're saying, we can run this company better and get it to that stage. And then you have so much more credibility when you go back to Congress and say, we are running our company properly and we have our house in order. You should take us seriously when we come and ask you to pay for something that is as massive as a $13 billion tunnel. Amtrak will report its earnings next month, and those results will show whether Anderson's new approach is putting Amtrak in the black. But whether getting into the black should even be the mission of Amtrak, or whether the rail company is there as a public good, is a different question. It remains a philosophical question. The fans of the long-distance routes and people who live in the areas that that they serve say, look, this is crystal clear. This is supposed to be a national railroad network. And the very first thing you cannot do is reduce the amount of train service that you were created to maintain. Anderson, he's thinking about a success as moving more people, selling more tickets. And there are others who would continue to say, no, the success is maintaining what you were bequeathed in 1971, which is this network that was going to go away if we let the private companies just drop it and wash their hands of it. There's a reason that so many people would view this structure as doomed to fail. I mean, you create a private for-profit company and its mission is to run something that by definition was not profitable. So it's in a way, it's a miracle that it's still here. That's all for today, Tuesday, October 15th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.